into that. Hey, if you guys would, turn to the guy to your right, person to your left, shake their hand, tell them you're glad they're here. Say hey to our new. Hey, y'all can go ahead and, and grab a seat just for a few minutes. Believe it or not, next Sunday night will be our last college service of the year. Can you believe it? It's unbelievable. And so we're going out in style. We're gonna have a senior appreciation Sunday. There'll be celebration, there'll be baptisms, there'll be testimonies. We'll have great teaching and worship as usual, and then we'll also have a little cherry on top. We'll have some Burton's ice cream for all of you. So don't miss it, it's gonna be fun. This is a perfect opportunity to invite some friends, some roommates, whoever you want. Let's try and pack this place out next Sunday night. It's gonna be fun. And for those of you that are sticking around this summer, we have something called the 412 Institute. This summer we're gonna be going through the book of Acts. We're gonna be studying the early church what it was like, and then we're gonna try and live it out in our groups. And so if you are here this summer, whether, that's, whether you live here or you're here for an internship or anything like that, please sign up. It's one of a, my favorite things that we do here. It's gonna be a blast. So sign up ASAP and you will not regret it. I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna continue to worship together. Father, we just thank you. We thank you that we get to be here in this room, that we, we get to praise your name, that we get to sing of your goodness and your faithfulness. I pray that we would never forget that, that they wouldn't just be words that we sing on a Sunday, but that they would be an overflow of the love that you've given us, that we would understand your faithfulness and that we would praise you for it. And so we thank you. We love you and praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I think I'd always missed that line. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. One thing that's kind of important is for Jesus, his day and age, they're celebrating Passover. What I just read to you is the Last Supper. It's basically Jesus' last words to his disciples. The night that he's betrayed, the night that he's arrested, the night before his crucifixion. And they're celebrating together. They're breaking bread, they're eating. And if you're a Jew in this time period when it's Passover, you're gonna celebrate Passover by singing a collection of psalms from the Old Testament. They're called the Hallel Psalms. You guys have heard Hallelujah. Hallelujah means praise, it's the praise psalms. Because they looked back and they remembered when they were slaves in Egypt. And a very, very loving God named Yahweh saw them and pulled them out. 
So they were remembering this feat of freedom and joy and celebration for their Lord. And I don't think it takes much to believe that Jesus probably let them in singing these things. But here's where I kind of want us to dive into a little bit. What blows me away is there's been more times than one that I've walked through those doors and I just haven't been feeling it. Like, man, I swear if they sing a song about how, God, how good God is right now, I'm gonna freak out. I'm gonna flip some chairs over or something. I don't know. It's hard. I know many of you are coming from places, man, saying God's good. That's probably a hard thing right now. I wanna come for you. First of all, God is big enough for your questions. God's not concerned that you're gonna find something that's gonna disprove who he is or who, like what he's done for us. He's not worried about that at all. What I think is so unique is Jesus enters into this with us. And if you don't believe me, I wanna read some of the Psalms that he would have read. And I want you to put yourself in the, the mindset of Jesus, walking to the Mount of Olives, a place called the Olive Press, Gethsemane, where he's gonna pray and weep, be arrested, begin his night-long walk to the cross. Psalm 116, eight through nine. For you, O Yahweh, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before Yahweh in the land of the living. Verses 12 and 15. What shall I return to Yahweh for all his goodness to me? Precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of his saints. 118, one. Give thanks to Yahweh for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Yahweh has done this this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. Verse 26, you are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to Yahweh for he is good. His love endures forever. Talk about an impossible feeling, singing those words the night before you were crucified. And I think this teaches us something really powerful. I've heard this said before and I hated it. Somebody said, Christians don't tell lies, they sing them. But I don't think that makes any room or any space for people who are struggling and fighting to believe something. Was Jesus a liar? Do we think that Jesus didn't struggle singing those words, leading his disciple in those words? Give thanks to Yahweh for he's good, his steadfast love endures forever. That must have been the easiest thing in the world for him to believe, right? Right before the Father is about to pour all of his wrath on him, abandon him on the cross. We have a brother in Jesus here. And so if many of you are entering into this place like that, I wanna encourage you, Jesus has been there. I think often confession precedes belief. Maybe if we don't believe this, what if we tried for the first time to confess it out loud and remind our soul? If you're in a season where things are going great and it's easy for you to believe that, sing it for the person next to you. How profound it is that our Savior can sympathize with us in this. So as we sing these words, you are good. I pray that you do that. If you don't believe it, confess it. Fight to believe it, try to believe it. If you do believe it, believe it for the person next to you. Sing it for the person next to you. Let's sing.
Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are not content to leave us. Father, if we were dealt with us, if you dealt with us according to what we deserved, Father, you would have stayed far, far away from us. But you came closer, closer, that your son would put on flesh, become one of us, and suffer the way we suffer. So we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we Father, that is our hope. And when we come in here and it's hard to sing, we're struggling, we have a high priest who knows what that's like. And even more so, a high priest who would take that a step further, die on the cross for our sins. And we know that this is love, not that we loved you, God, but that you loved us and you sent your son as a sacrifice for our sins. God, thank you, thank you. We are desperate for you. We are lost without you, Jesus. Father, be with Tad as he comes up. Would you bless him? Be able to teach us this marvelous story of Esther. We would know that, God, you oppose the proud and you give grace to the humble. You are just, you are righteous, and you are merciful. Father, we love you and we thank you. Amen. That song, like, takes me back to high school days growing up in student ministry here at Fellowship. Imagine Garland up here singing. And it really hit me. <laughs> God started doing a lot of work in my life. Um, my name's Tad. I, like I said, I grew up going to church here at Fellowship. I have the privilege of serving on the student ministry team here at the Fayetteville campus. And um, I'm really thankful to get to come share with you guys tonight about Esther. Uh, this book, um, a couple of years ago, we taught in the student ministry. and. I had never really studied it before, but it is one of my favorite Old Testament books now. I think it is fascinating. It's, um, it's definitely, you guys, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, uh, you've seen it's kind of dark and gritty and messy. Uh, it's, it's, it, you almost wonder, like, how can this book be in the Bible? Uh, but then as you look at it, it's like, this is just 
ridiculous what happens in this story. It's, it's almost comical. Um, I studied English at the University of Arkansas, and so we had to read a lot of like Greek tragedies and Shakespeare and stuff like that. And this story reads like just a ridiculous, like comical, ironic, like tragedy. Uh, and it's just absurd. It's almost like a soap opera. Just little twists and turns here and, and these little side conversations happening and, and like backstabbing, but then just like weird twist. And so um, if, if you haven't, I'm assuming all of you have read it by now, right? If you're, if, you're, if you're good students of scripture, so you've been reading the book that you guys are studying at church, but just in case, because you know like there's finals coming up, I thought it'd be helpful if we started off with just kind of like a super quick flyby, just highlighting the ridiculousness of this story. It's gonna be a little silly and I hope not irreverent, but I'm trying to highlight like it, this story is absurd. So I found a bunch of clip art online and I basically made like a, like a felt board, but on a PowerPoint. And so um, buckle up, here we go. This is Esther. I present to you, Esther. Uh, the story is set in Susa, the capital of Persia. This, I'm assuming, is a picture of Susa. I Googled it. Um, the world is run by a man named Xerxes. It's just hideous clip art, but it gets better, I promise. Uh, Xerxes runs the world. He is he's just extravagantly wealthy, and he's throwing this extravagant party at the beginning of Esther. He's showing off his wealth and his power and his might, and he apparently is just kind of depicted as this, like, just drunk throughout the whole story. He's, he's constantly drinking. He's making questionable decisions, and it seems like every turn of the story, he's got a drink in his hand. It's just wacky, um, but he apparently gets pretty sauced one night at this, at this month-long party that he's going, did I use that word right? <laughs> Y'all are in college, I don't know. Um, so uh, he's like, you know what I want? Vashti, the queen. I want her to come in here. I want to show off my, my beautiful wife to everybody. And you kind of get the implication that he doesn't really want her to be wearing much when she comes in. This is kind of like an R-rated book. Uh, and so Vashti's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and so he's not having that because he's Xerxes, king of Persia, the biggest empire in the world. And so he's not going to be told by, no by anyone. So he's like, see you. And uh, says, get rid of her. Uh, and then later, I guess he sobered up a little bit, and he's like, I miss my wife. Like, I, I told, like, I'm lonely. And so some of his idiot friends are like, you know what you should do? You should just gather up all the beautiful virgins in Persia, and then pick your favorite. That's, what, that's how you should find a new queen. And so he does just that. He encounters this woman named Esther, and he falls for her because she's the best and, and the most beautiful. Um, and it turns out, this is kind of a twist, Esther uh, is, is, a, is Jewish, but it's a secret. She hasn't told anybody. This is where it kind of gets like kind of dramatic, you know? Um, and so she is a Jewish orphan girl who's grown up in Susa. Uh, the Jews are, are at this point refugees, exiles in the, in the country of Persia because they were taken into exile whenever uh, Babylon took over and now Persia's in charge. And then it gets weird because I guess because she was orphaned, she was raised by her cousin Mordecai, who's also Jewish because they're related. That's how that works. But Mordecai tells her to keep the secret. Here's another weird twist. All of a sudden, Mordecai overhears this, this assassination plot where some guys are wanting to kill King Xerxes. And so as a good citizen of Persia, he does the right thing, and he goes and tells Esther, he says, you should probably tell the king that these dudes are trying to kill Xerxes. And so he's like, okay. I'm working on my, like, Gen Z language. Did I get it right? Did I do it? Yes. All right. So Xerxes has all of the, the assassins impaled on pikes because that's what they did in Persia whenever they wanted to publicly humiliate someone in death. And so they have them all killed. 
Uh, the story moves on. You would think that at this point, Mordecai would get elevated to some position of status because he saved the king's life, but he doesn't. And instead, this dude named Haman, uh, the Agagite, he gets elevated. And he becomes second in command. He's a really greedy, evil guy. You can tell by the picture. He just, he looks bad, you know? And so Haman becomes um, this second really powerful guy. Haman's walking through the streets and everybody bows down to him, but Mordecai doesn't. Mordecai's like, no, I'm not having any of that. I'm not gonna bow down to this guy. I'm not gonna give in to this idolatry of this. And some people are like, why aren't you bowing down, man? You gotta do this, you're gonna get in trouble. And he's like, no, and it kind of comes to the surface. He tells them, I'm Jewish. So maybe he's making some sort of connection. He's trying to be a faithful Jew. He's not gonna give in to the idolatry of the empire he's in. Uh, but Haman doesn't like that. He's really angry about it. He can't handle that somebody won't bow down to him. And so he goes and he tells Xerxes, kill the Jews. Like, let's just kill all of them. It's not enough to kill Mordecai. Let's kill this entire race of people. And Xerxes is like, sweet, let's do it. Because I'm assuming maybe he's drunk at this point of the story too. So after that, uh, Mordecai's like, that's not good. So he goes and he beseeches Esther, who's now the queen, and says, maybe, like, you've got to do something. And she's kind of nervous because I can't just go approach the king or else I'll get killed. And he's like, I don't know, maybe this isn't coincidental that you ended up the queen. Maybe this is happening for such a time as this, the big famous line from Esther. Uh, and she has that famous line where she says, okay, fine, I'll do it. I will go and I will, I will approach the king. And if I die, I die. But I will do this. I'll identify with my people. I'll reveal that I'm Jewish to him. And maybe he'll save the people and we, we will be okay. And so they're like, okay, good. So she goes and she approaches Xerxes kind of nervous because like, what's he going to do? But again, this guy's madly in love with her. And he's like, you know what, Esther, whatever you want, you can request anything up to half my kingdom and it's yours. And she's really clever. She doesn't, she doesn't tell him exactly what she wants right off the bat. She kind of, she's kind of teasing it out. She's, she's trying to gauge his interest a little bit. And she says, what are you doing for dinner? Why don't you come over tonight and we'll have dinner and I'll tell you what I want then. And oh, by the way, bring Haman with you. He, I guess he wanted, she wanted him there as well. Xerxes doesn't care. He just knows there might be wine at this party. So he goes. Uh, they're there, and again, Xerxes says, all right, we're here. What do you want? You can have up to half my kingdom. She's very clever again. She doesn't tip her hand just yet. She wants to keep rising his interest. So she says, why don't you come back tomorrow night? Then I'll tell you. One more time, come back tomorrow for dinner, and then I'll tell you. And Haman, you don't, why don't you come too, all right? And so Haman, at this point, is feeling himself. He's like, this is awesome. I am like, Killing it, I got everything I want. He's throwing a party, he gathers all of his family together. Um, they didn't have a picture of his wife, so that's Zeresh, <laughs> Haman's wife. Um, I think he loved her because she looked a lot like him and he's kind of a self-conceited person, so I, maybe that's why he found her attractive, I don't know. Um, He's having all this stuff and he's bragging about all the amazing things he has and that nobody else was invited to Esther's party but him and Xerxes, so he's really important. But it's still really bugging him that Mordecai won't bow down to him. And he says, I can't stand this. None of that means anything to me if Mordecai won't bow down to me. Uh, and so his wife is like, why don't you have him killed? Why don't you get that guy impaled on a stake? That'll fix all your problems, then you'll feel better. So why don't you go back tomorrow morning and ask the king if you can kill him and then go to Esther's next party and you'll feel better. And so he's like, all right, he goes to bed. It just so happens, though, that that night, the story is just like all these twists and turns again. Xerxes can't sleep. He's lying awake at night. He's having sleepless nights. I guess having all the power in the world sometimes keeps you up at night. He can't sleep, so he calls in one of the scribes to read from him uh, just stories about how great his kingdom is, and he gets a bedtime story, essentially, um, from the grandpa from Princess Bride, and who's reading to him the chronicles of, of, of his kingdom. And he remembers Mordecai. And he hears about how Mordecai turned in the assassins and saved him. And so he's like, what did, did we honor him? Did we give him stuff for that? And they're like, no, you didn't do anything. And he's like, I gotta fix that. So the next day, uh, Haman comes to the king and Xerxes asks him, what should the king do to honor a, a, good, a great man? What should he do? And of course, Haman thinks, he must be talking about me. 
And so he says, well, if, if I were you, I would throw a giant parade and I would let that man ride on your own horse and wear your own robes and just be very important and, and be paraded through the streets, having everybody talk about how important he was. And Xerxes says, that sounds awesome. You should go do that for Mordecai right now. Haman's ticked because he's like, I was gonna have this guy killed and I didn't even have a chance to ask. And so he now has to parade Mordecai through the streets. He's really bitter about it. He goes home and he whines to his wife, but then later he's like, I guess I just gotta go to Esther's party. And so he goes, and there, again, Xerxes asks, what do you want up to have my kingdom? And Esther tells him, save my people from Haman. The king is ticked at Haman, and Haman gets impaled on the very stake that he prepared in his front yard to hang Mordecai on earlier that morning. And then... Esther and Mordecai are elevated in the kingdom and everyone remembers them forever and everybody remembers that they lived happily ever after and it's wonderful. The end, that is the story of Esther in a nutshell. Okay. So, hopefully that gives a quick recap of what's going on. This story is ridiculous. Like, it's just all these twists and turns and this just ridiculous irony. If you see the pattern of the book, it's like, it starts off, they're, they're parading Xerxes and his greatness. By the end, they're talking about how amazing Mordecai is. This no one citizen who God chose to save. And it starts out so dark and gritty. And yet by the end, it's just almost comical how God twists and reverses it. The story does backflips. And it's just, it, I, I find it so amazing and it has so much to teach us. And so I wanna hone in specifically on what happened that, that, that day where Haman tries to kill Mordecai and yet everything becomes kind of, at the, the, the story begins to flip at that point. We're gonna look more intently at that and kind of ask some questions. And so before we go any further, we've been very silly. Why don't we pray and ask God to teach us from his word. So bow your heads with me, all right? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can learn from it today, that this story from thousands of years ago that has been told year after year by the Jewish people as they look back on this part of their history, that it turned into a feast for them that's so important. Would we, as, as outsiders who have been grafted into your people, would we learn from this and begin to appreciate it more so that we can live as better followers of you? Thank you for your word. Thank you that it's fun to study it in community with other people. Uh, thank you for being with us tonight. Amen. question that kind of jumped out at me as I'm studying Esther is this, especially when thinking about Haman. What do you expect to make you happy in life? What are you chasing after? What are you hoping to gain from life? What do you think will fill you with satisfaction? Uh, I think typically, most things that we're chasing after fall into these categories. I want to get possessions. I want to have nice things. I want to be wealthy. Uh, I want to be able to uh, enjoy uh, things and materialism. It's popularity. I want to be known. Some of y'all are trying real hard to get famous on TikTok because that is what you think is going to make you happy, to have recognition or become an influencer and get paid to put soap on your hands. I don't know how that works, how they make money on Instagram. But uh, others are maybe chasing power. You want to be in control. And that could be a, in, in like kind of a, like a good altruistic way of like, I just want to have a sense of control over my life. Uh, I don't need to be able to control other people, but I want to be able to control my situation and be comfortable. I want some power. Others, it be, can become a little more manipulative, and you're manipulating other people to gain power over them, and that brings you a sense of pleasure to be in charge, to have authority over others, to, to rise the ranks of hierarchy in, in our society. Other people are just chasing pleasure, living for the next weekend. What's the next party? What's the next vacation I could take? Uh, this pleasure. We think these things will make us happy that they will fill our soul with satisfaction. And yet when you look at Haman, it's interesting. 
when he gathers his party together, he calls together his whole family and his wife. He boasts to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, all the ways the king had honored him, how he'd elevated him above other nobles. And he's like, I even get invited to the cool parties. He had all of this. And yet he immediately follows that with this statement. All of this gives me no satisfaction as long as that Jew Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. As long as someone else challenges my power, I can't be happy. And that's the thing. I think when we chase after all of those things, we realize there's never going to be enough. And it's tragic. The, the, the arc of Haman's story as he's chasing after these things and he becomes so consumed with it that, that one person refusing to bow down to him and to worship him sets him off. And he begins to plot a genocide, to kill off an entire people group. He's manipulative. He's whiny a little bit. He wants to commit murder. It's not enough. It will never be enough. And yet, he sets out not just to kill Mordecai, but to have him hung up on a pole. In ancient Persia, this was a way that they would execute people, or even after executing them, that they would publicly humiliate them after their death by impaling their body on a pole and placing it in a place where other people would see it. Imagine how grotesque that would be to walk down the streets and you see someone who's been executed and their body mangled, a log shoved through it. And you see their face and you recognize them and you're like, ah, oh, those are the guys that plotted against the king. I sure, don't wanna, I sure don't want that to be my fate. I guess I'll fall in line. I'll just go about my business and I won't ever challenge the king. It was a way to demonstrate your power to elevate yourself and absolutely humiliate your enemy. That's what he plans for Mordecai. It's disgusting and grotesque and evil. And then, remember, he went to the king and he gets this opportunity to get honor for himself and he describes this just ridiculously extravagant parade. He wants a parade for himself to show off even more, to continue boasting in a way, he's kind of a miniature version of Xerxes from the beginning. He gathered all of his family together to boast about his wealth and kind of put on this little second-tier parade that Xerxes had thrown his party at the beginning. He's, he's getting caught up in that. He wants the parade for himself. And yet, again, he's prepared humiliation for Mordecai and honor for himself. And by the end of the story, Mordecai is the one honored and Haman is the one humiliated, hung on a pole, the very pole that he set up for his enemy. It's tragic, and yeah, he's the bad guy in the story, but you begin to wonder, how did he get there? All of his plans to elevate himself over other people reversed back onto himself. And you see that, if you haven't, uh, just, just a quick pub, if you're studying this book and you wanna learn more, go look up the Bible Project's video. I think they do a beautiful job just highlighting the, the, the way this story mirrors itself that everything begins to have this reversal and it really begins at this part where suddenly Haman has to parade Mordecai through the streets instead of himself. Go watch it and just appreciate the way that the author of Esther wove the story together to highlight this theme. And you can see just again, like the way this goes, Haman chooses the parade for himself and shame and humiliation for Mordecai. He wants to go up and yet by the end of the story, he's the one humiliated. It all comes crashing back down on him. And yet Mordecai's story is different. He knew the stake could await him if he didn't bow down to Haman. 
I don't know what his life looked like prior to all of this. We maybe get the hint that he was a good man. He took in his orphaned cousin Esther and raised her as his own daughter. So, so he may have been a humble person, cared about other people, but something triggered in him at this moment where Haman's marching down the street daily and everyone else is bowing down, worshiping him, and he says, I'm not gonna do that. I won't stand, for, or I will stand for this. I won't bow down to this. I will not give in to the worship of, worship of empire. And when he's pressed, the only answer we get, the only hint is he says, I'm a Jew. He's identifying with God's people. We don't do that. We don't bow down to the idols of empire. And he knew the stake would await him if he went that road. And he chose it anyway. He chose the humble route, the way of humiliation. But by the end of the story, he's elevated. How does that work? What's going on in the story? You almost see the same pattern with Xerxes and Esther. That Xerxes, this powerful man that has everything at the beginning of the story, and he chooses to parade himself. But by the end of the story, he's stuck. He's trapped in his own power. He can't even reverse the, the, the edict that he set out to have the Jews destroyed. He's like, I can't actually go back on my word because I'm actually, I'm not the one in charge. It's all of these customs, and I'm, I'm actually ruled by the empire as well, even though I'm the one in charge. And so he just, all he can do is say, I guess the Jews can fight back. They can fight back to defend themselves. He kind of looks foolish by the end of this. Again, he's drunk most of the story. He's kind of doing what just all of his idiot friends suggest him do. He thinks it's a good idea and he acts impulsively. And he looks foolish. But Esther, this poor orphan refugee girl who's taken basically kidnapped and subjected to sexual abuse as the king finds a new wife. By the end of the story, she's the one calling the shots. She's telling Mordecai what to do. Go out and gather all the Jews and tell them to hold a fast. She's the one that's given Haman's estate after he dies, and she gets to put, Haman, or put Mordecai in charge of it. She rises, and she is elevated, though she started with humility. And she chose that. If I perish, I perish. I will risk my life. She could have very well said, I've had a horrible life, and even though I don't like my situation, at least I have the comfort of being hidden. No one knows I'm Jewish. I get to live in the palace. I have nice things. For all of the suffering I've experienced, can you just give me a break and let me experience this comfort? But she gives it up for her people. If I perish, I perish. She chooses humiliation. She chooses the stake, and yet she's elevated. We see this theme put on display in the story of Esther in a really like just blatant way. Again, if you see the pattern of the way this book goes, it's this, this kind of theme throughout scripture that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. You see this uh, verse in, in James and in Peter, and the apostles, they're teaching the church how to live, and they're referencing back to so many Old Testament things. It, it's, it's kind of explicitly said in Psalm 138 that though God is exalted, he sees the lowly, and he sees their situation. Jesus taught this. Don't choose the high place. Choose the low place. That way you'll be elevated. Choose humility, not pride, because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Why would the story have mattered so much to the Jews, I wonder? Why did they share this every year? Why did this become a part of their big customs and, and their people group as they're looking at this story? I'm not Jewish, uh, but I could speculate based on kind of what I see in the Old Testament is that, especially at this moment, they are an exiled people group 
And they're looking back on their story. And they're telling stories like Esther to remind themselves something. God has chosen us, this random people group, to be a part of his great redemption plan. Not based off of our own merit, but actually out of our humility. That we had nothing. That he started this people group with Abraham and Sarah, this old barren couple. The humiliation that they would have felt for having lived a full life and, and accrued what they had, but not had descendants to pass it on to. They're humiliated, and yet God selects them and say, out of you I'm going to create a people group that I'm gonna bless so that I can bring the rest of creation back into blessing and back into my plan for restoration. He chooses the humble. You could continue to look through this story and see one of their descendants, Joseph, who is sold by his brothers into slavery and goes off to Egypt and ends up in prison and is treated unfairly and unjustly all of his life. And then at the proper time, after all of that humiliation, God exalts him to second in Egypt and he is then able to save his family when they come down out of the famine. You see this on display later when Moses is leading the people group of Israel. They were slaves in Egypt and God chose them and shamed the empire of Egypt by elevating this humble enslaved people group. You see it later through David, the last son of Jesse, who when Samuel comes and says, one of your children is gonna be king, he doesn't even remember him because David's out with the sheep, the humble last-born son, the unimportant one. Yet God elevates him, status of king. Something's going on throughout this, this these patterns of this story where God opposes the proud but shows favor and grace to the humble, the needy, the outcast, the marginalized. He uses them to shame the, the, the power systems that have risen up against God and elevated themselves to a status of God-likeness in opposition to God. And I think this story is especially important as they're sharing it at this time because they're reflecting on their past and they are now exiled because they lost sight of that. That's the whole reason they're in exile. It wasn't long after Solomon, David's son, was king. Actually, right after he died, his son began enslaving his people group that they rose in pride, they began giving in to that lure of empire to subject other people and show off their pride and, and celebrate wealth and sex and status. God opposed them. That's not how my covenant people live. You've forgotten your humility that I chose you from nothing. And that's why they went into exile. And they're trying to reclaim this. I think that's why Esther is such an important story to them. It says, choose the stake. Choose the way of humiliation in the short run because God at the proper time will exalt you. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand and at the proper time he will exalt you. That's what James and Peter say. It's interesting that the, the Persian method of humiliation was adapted by the Romans. They just took this, basically this idea of hanging someone on a pole and the Romans took it and just said, why don't we just make it kill them slower? Make it more agonizing. People can watch them die, and they invented the cross. And centuries after this story is told, Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, this humble man from humble beginnings, begins leading movement of his people, calling the marginalized and the hurting and the oppressed to himself. 
says, I'm going to bring about the kingdom of God. And he doesn't do it by amassing an army. He gathers the weak and the crippled. He chooses the low path. He chooses the stake. He goes to the cross. He's publicly humiliated, laughed at, scoffed at, spit on. And yet God exalts him. Go read it, Philippians 2. It talks about how though he was in nature God, he took on the form of man. He was obedient to the point of death on a cross, humiliating death. He was shamed, and yet because of that, God has exalted his name above every other name. And Jesus invites his followers to do the same, to live like that. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up the cross and follow me. We often over-spiritualize that. Take up the cross. He's saying choose the way of humiliation. Don't try to uh, just position yourself over other people. Choose the low road. That's the way that I'm bringing about my kingdom through humble people who are willing to risk everything to follow me, to lay down their life. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world if they lose their soul? Jesus is wanting to show his people this, that to believe this ideal, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And if we would call ourselves followers of Jesus, we need to embrace this ideal. We need to take up that same ideal that the exiles did, to look on our past and see the places where we have tried to elevate ourselves and say, that is not going anywhere. In fact, that's going to lead to our demise. We will end up on the stakes we prepare for other people if we try to keep climbing the system. Choose the cross. Follow Jesus down his cross-shaped path to victory. That's how he's bringing his kingdom. And he's asking us to follow him and entrust him in that, to believe that even if we choose that, he will vindicate us. I wonder if Jesus, the night before his death in the garden, as he's crying to God, Lord, not my will, but your will be done, but I don't know if I, I, don't know if I can do this. I wonder if he thought, God, you told me to choose the low road. You told me to go to the cross. I'm going to be obedient to you, but, and you said that if I do, you're going to raise me from the dead. I wonder how agonizing it was for him to actually believe that in his humanity. Will he actually raise me, or am I going to stay dead? As his followers, we need to trust in that as well, that God is good and faithful to his promises. We sing about that, that if we choose to follow Jesus, even if it leads to our humiliation in this life, he will vindicate us. It might not happen as swiftly as it did in the story of Esther, but even if it doesn't happen in this life, we trust that when Christ returns and raises us from the dead, those humble followers of Jesus who have followed him with their lives will be raised to rule and reign with him in new creation and be vindicated over the powers of darkness and sin. He defeated death with its own worst instrument. He's worth following do you believe that? We'll continue in a time of worship, and I want you to think about this. Again, I think we often, we often kind of spiritualize, the, over-spiritualize this. We should definitely internalize it, but almost too internalizing this um, can look like calling our lives Christian and not actually living like it. That when we look at the story of Esther, most likely, I don't know all of your stories, but, but we're in, Fayetteville, this is a college ministry. Most of you are privileged enough to be going to college in this room. 
Most of us probably grew up in the suburbs. We had some amount of privilege. We probably have more in common with Xerxes and Haman than we do with Esther and Mordecai. The Esthers of the world are the refugee children. The children separated from their parents at borders don't know when they're gonna hug their mom again. The Mordecais are the, the single fathers trying to work their job to provide for their kids and get passed up for a promotion, maybe even because of their race. But God sees the lowly. And this story would provide hope to someone that Yet it's kind of convicting for most of us. Saying, I'm a lot more like Haman. I chase after all these things and I try to build up my life uh, to, to have a sense of power, pleasure, possessions. Not really caring about how it affects other people. And I just wonder what would it look like to kind of adopt that, that mindset of an exile. See, I'm gonna choose the low road. I'm gonna stop this rat race of trying to achieve things. It's not wrong to do that. God may put you in a position of influence. And yet when the moment comes, will you sacrifice that, that same mindset of Esther? If I perish, I perish. It's willing to risk this to be a part of what God is doing. Think on that. Are you trying to elevate yourself? If so, the warning of the story is that God opposes you. Have you humbled yourself? Choose the low road. That is where God will meet us because that's where Jesus went when we follow him. Father, would you convict our hearts by your word? I, I love the story of Esther. And in some ways it's been enjoyable to read. In other ways it's felt like a knife in my life, ask, making me ask the questions of, am I just chasing after some American dream of status without care for other people or what my success does to them? Am I considerate of the lowly and am I willing to follow you there? Lord, would you convict us to the point of repentance so that we can live as your faithful followers?
that conviction that I have felt, asking that question maybe like some of you, of like, man, when I look at this story, I wonder, am I actually, am I missing this? Am I, am I living out some sort of Christianity that, that my culture is okay with because there's some sort of benefit to this? We're in the South after all, and you can go to church to network with people. But am I, am I missing what Jesus actually called me to? And am I off track? Have I compromised with culture? And am I worshiping the idols of the empire that I live in? But then I look at this story and I'm comforted because Esther and Mordecai, at the beginning of the story, may have been just as compromised as the rest of their Persian culture. After all, they were the exiles that didn't go back to Israel. They stayed. Their names are derived from Persian gods. Maybe they had compromised. Maybe they were content to keep living in empire. And yet when the moment came, they chose to follow Yahweh, to identify with his people, to humble themselves, to stop chasing after comfort and compromise, but to risk their life to the stake, to the cross. God did with their life. Look how it played into his larger redemption plan that because of their faithfulness, the Jews weren't annihilated and could continue to live and Jesus came. As a Gentile millions of miles away from that, I benefited from that. It's not too late is what I'm saying. You may feel totally compromised, totally unfaithful, but it, any moment you could turn, you could trust in him, humble yourself. Jesus told a parable of, of two men who went to the altar to pray, and one stood judging, looking at a tax collector, and said, God, thank you that I'm not like him. Pride. And yet the other man is weeping. beating his chest. God, help me. I'm a sinner. He's a tax collector gathering taxes from his own people for Rome. He had totally compromised with culture and forsaken God. And then he comes to that point of repentance and he's beating his chest. God, help me. Help me break free of this. It's not too late to have that moment. God, help me. I can't do this without you. I need you. God opposes the proud but shows grace to the humble. Jesus said that man went away justified with God. It's not too late for you. Maybe you need to have that moment with Jesus tonight. Yes, this, there's no other name. There is no other name but the name that is Jesus.
Heavenly Father, that's our prayer. We would come to you. We wouldn't buy into the ideology of empire. What can we gain? How we can elevate ourselves, Father, when we humble ourselves. We love you. We'll see you all next week.